0: Hey, I want to thank you guys for being at Journey Church, whether you're here with me live, if you're watching online in Plymouth Meeting and in Limerick, it's an honor to be with you in church this morning. My name is Jordan, and I have the privilege over the next few moments uh, to speak to you. And we are in a brand new sermon series starting today called In the Face of Fire. And if you're not from church What that means is that for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about a similar uh, topic. And what we're going to be looking at is men and women in the Bible uh, who were faced with difficult circumstances, who were thrown into the face of fire, and they were given two options. They could either flee or they could face what was presented in front of them. And we're going to watch and we're going to learn just like these men and women who were written about in a book that would be read for thousands of years by billions of people, how they had the faith to stand in the face of fire. And so today I've titled my message, Playing With Fire. And let's just kick today off because if you don't know, we're going to have fun in church this morning, right? I heard a rumor that second experience is more excited about church than first experience. That was a lie, right? Because nobody said anything, right? We're going to have some fun in church this morning. So by a raise of hands at all of our campuses right now, who would be willing to admit that when they were a kid that they did something stupid with, with fire? Yeah, that's right. Everybody not raising your hand is a liar, right? Like, I'll tell you an example, Uh, just to kind of introduce myself a little bit, if you don't know anything about me, I'm from uh, Gettysburg, and when I say Gettysburg, what I mean is I'm from a town so small that no one's ever heard of it, so I say Gettysburg. You do the same thing with Philadelphia, right? Nobody's like, oh, yeah, I've definitely heard of, you know, Downingtown or Doylestown or whatever, all the other towns we have around here. You say, I'm from Philadelphia, right? So I'm from Gettysburg. And what that means is, uh, with the exception of the city of Gettysburg, it's pretty much just farms everywhere, right? Now, contrary to popular belief, my my best friend was not a cow, uh, but, but we didn't have much to do, right? Like, everything pretty much closed by 8.30, with the exception of, like, the Taco Bell, right, which was open until... 9.30, 9.30, and so we would hang out there, but for the most part, when you're a teenager, right, and everything closes early, uh, you find dumb stuff to do, okay, and so uh, my buddy and I, we decided that we would create what I have now affectionately termed a firebomb. How many at any of our campuses has ever made a firebomb before? Yeah, put your hand down. There's no such thing as a firebomb, right? Like, I just made that up in that garage in Aspers, Pennsylvania, that summer night, And so what we did is we found uh, some plastic tubing. Uh, we got some bottle rockets, right? Pushed it down inside of this plastic tubing, uh, and then we thought it would be a good idea uh, to pretty much find anything else that could blow up, right? And so uh, we got some of his dad's uh, gunpowder, poured a little bit of gasoline in. Uh, we had some cherry poppers left over from the Fourth of July, and listen. This was not like, this was a stupid idea, granted, but the way that we did it was like MacGyver, right? So we cut all the fuses off these cherry bombs, right? And we fashioned one long 20-foot fuse, right? And we led it to this, this fire bomb. And I think inherently because we knew it was a bad idea, uh, we decided we were going to light this fire bomb off uh, in his neighbor's uh, apple orchard end of story, right? Like I literally, I don't even have to tell the rest of the story. You know what happened, right? And so we, we took it over to, to the orchard. We, you know, we put it underneath a five-gallon uh, bucket from Home Depot, like that was going to do anything. And we hid behind this tree and we lit off this firebomb. And here's what I learned that night. Fire is dangerous. Like like fire can get you into trouble, right? Like my my daughter learned this recently. She somehow found uh, our iron, uh, took it into the living room, unplugged our light, plugged it in and laid it on my couch, right? Like she was almost in the face of fire. She burnt her hand. That's the only reason that I found out about that. And now I have a big brown stain on my nice Ikea couch uh, to remember for the rest of my life. But here's what I believe most of us have probably learned at some point in our lives. Fire is not to be messed with, Right? Fire is dangerous, and I think at some level, uh, we approach difficult circumstances or obstacles. Obviously, it's a metaphor for fire, but I think we approach these things assuming that because we can be hurt by them, they are inherently wrong. And so what I'd like us to do uh, to sort of wake us up, because most of you look like you haven't had any coffee today. I don't know about Plymouth meeting in Limerick, uh, but I want you to repeat after me because this is what we're going to learn over the next few weeks. Ready? Fire is my friend. Ready? Fire is my friend, right? All right, so that was like two of you. Let's do it one more time. Fire is my friend, okay? What we're gonna learn is that I believe God is gonna show us through the course of these stories that there were men and women who were presented uh, with fire, that they were faced with fire, and because of it, they actually became who God had called them to be. And so I learned some things about fire this week. Uh, if you have any questions or disputes about my scientific findings, you can email me. Uh, my email is bob at jrny.church. Right? And if you don't know, that's our limit campus pastor, and he's going to have lots of emails tomorrow. right? So maybe I made this up, but he tells me that, that fire, uh, the thing about fire is what goes into it, y- it becomes something brand new. Like through the process of fire, you cannot put something into a fire and get that same thing back out. That it becomes something brand new. So tuck that away for later. We're going to come back to that. And here's another thing about fire. You are going to be faced with fire. Like most of you have probably lived enough life to realize that you will be faced with a circumstance that's beyond your control. You will be faced uh, with, a, with, a, with a decision where you are able to either stand for what God has called you to stand for or, or make a decision to the alternative. And here's what I hope that we've all learned by now. You will continue to be faced with that fire until you pass that test, right? Anybody remember in high school when you were like, man, I got a great idea. There's an algebra test that I didn't study for. I'm gonna coincidentally be sick that day, right? You know, a la Ferris Bueller's day off. And so you put the warm compress on you did everything you needed to do and you, you know your parents bought it weird thing is when you went back to school your teacher wasn't like you weren't here so i gave you 100 <laughs> it didn't make any sense right she told you to go into the other room and take the algebra test like it was not going away and your teacher was trying to communicate to you just pass the test and so I believe over the course of these next three and four weeks that we're going to learn uh, not only that fire is our friend, but God, he uses that fire to make us into who he's called us to be. And so I want to read to you today a story about three men uh, by the names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I would challenge all of you who uh, maybe learned this story on a felt board at one point in your life uh, not to tune out because you're probably the person that needs to hear this sermon. And so we're going to talk about three men uh, that when faced with insurmountable circumstances decided to be uh, unbelievable men of resolve and conviction in the face of fire. And so if you don't know anything about Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, let me just tell you we 're going to read a passage in just a moment out of the Bible, and if you don't know anything about the Bible it 's split in half. The first half is called the Old Testament. It talks about the Jewish people and the Israelite nation, and the second half talks about a man named Jesus that you 've probably heard of we're going to be in the first half uh, in a book written by a man named daniel, and just to give you an idea of what's going on as this book is being written, these three men, they grew up in the Israelite nation, right? It's like uh, if you've ever watched the Prince of Egypt, you know, they're all happy-go-lucky and, you know, they're, they're fishing and they're, you know, doing all the fun stuff. And then the tragedy enters, right? The Babylonian nation comes and absolutely obliterates the Israelites, that they burn men, women, and children alive, that they take anything that was worth taking and they decimate everything else to the ground. And what we find is that our three men in this story fall into that category of things worth taking that these men were significant for some reason. And we don't know why, but they are taken as refugees to this new land. Everyone else is killed, and with the exception of these three men and probably a dozen others, they're taken back to the Babylonian Empire. And what happens is, for three years, they would go through like a welcome to Babylon class, right? Right? except the goal of the Welcome to Babylon class was to get you to basically forget everything that you ever learned in your old culture, right? They would take you out of Israel, but they then had to take the Israel out of you. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not, they're given names, they're given brand new names. For three years, day in and day out, their faith is stripped from them as they are explained and, and begin to learn that, you know, they'll, they'll tell them, your God means nothing. We wiped you out, no problem. We had dozens and, and thousands of other soldiers left over and we still were able to wipe you to the ground. Your God means nothing. For three years, day in and day out, their culture, their heritage, it's, it's, it's ripped from them. And as we read this Bible verse, what we find is that these men, despite this, are still found so excellent that they are promoted to positions of authority. That right there is a whole different sermon. But these men, they become government officials. And as we jump into this, it's in Daniel 3 that we're going to read in just a moment. Uh, Here's what's going on in the lives of our heroes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They have a king over their province, and his name is King Nebuchadnezzar, right? he is not a nice king. So we're going to call him King Nebi. That sounds a lot less threatening. So we have King Nebi, right? And he is so, I guess the word would be infatuated with himself that he has decided he's going to send out a decree where he takes people's gold. He melts it down. He builds it into an altar that looks like him. And then he tells everyone in the land, when you hear music, I want you to bow down to me. Now, before we go any further, if you or anyone you know has ever thought, man, if I ever had enough money, I would melt down a bunch of gold, I would make it into an idol, and then I would make people bow down to it. Let me just tell you, you need counseling. Like this, this is not a normal dude, right? Like this dude. He thinks very highly of himself. And so we're pushed into this story where these three men uh, are amongst this nation that is forced to bow down to this man. And about two or three weeks go by, and word gets back to King Nebi that these three men have decided that they will not bow down when the music plays. And so as we jump into our story, we're going to find out just exactly what our king has to say about this. And so if you want to read with me, we're in Daniel 3 beginning in verse 15, and the words are going to be on the screen uh, behind me and beside me at all the campuses. It says this, now, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image that I have made, then very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Listen to this. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? That phrase right there is really important. We're going to come back to that. Let's listen to how our heroes respond. They say, King Nebi. They don't say that. They say King Nebuchadnezzar, but just for the sake of this morning. King Nebi, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. For if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, then the God that we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But listen to this. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. And so if you don't know the end of the story, what ends up happening is our king does not like this. He comes through on his promise and sends these men into the blazing furnace. In fact, he tells them, turn the furnace up seven times hotter than it's ever been. It says that the guards that escort them into the furnace are actually burned alive because it is so hot. And what we find is that these three men, not only do they continue to enter and exit the furnace unscathed, but it says that they see a fourth man who is in the furnace with them. And we understand that that is God, that's the presence of the Holy Spirit that has seen them through this fire. And they come out and the king says... I'm so astounded by this that I've now issued another decree that if everyone does not bow down to these men's God, they will be thrown into the furnace. Outstanding, right? And I think, I think maybe this is where we tend to focus when we, when we listen to this story. It's always about the miracle, right? We always want to focus on the miracle. Can you believe what God did for them? They went through a blazing furnace. All the guards died. They didn't die. They came out. Everybody had a party, Right? And what I'd like us to do is over the next few moments, instead, focus on the resolve of these men. And so we have two options when we're faced with a fire. And I have two points today. And everyone said, amen, right? Home by the Eagles game. First point is this. When you are faced with a fire, you can either Face it or you can flee from it. And so those of you who are in church with me right now, who are maybe joining us for your first or your second time, I wanna let you know, you can just take a, a deep sigh of relief and sort of relax in your chair because for the next few moments, I'm gonna to talk to those people in our rooms that have decided to follow Jesus, that you claim to be a Christian, that, that, that you have devoted your life to Christ. I wanna to talk to you because when you are faced with situations where decisions have to be made, you have two choices. You can either flee from it or you can face it. And so the first point I want to talk to uh, is all those people in our rooms who, if you're honest, you would just say, you know what? I'm a coward. I'm going to flee from it. How do I do it? I'm glad you asked. The first thing that I want to talk about today is how to flee from the fire. And you flee from the fire through compromise. See, maybe we don't understand how easy it would have been for these men at this point in our story to just bow down. I mean, think about it. Of all of the refugees that have been taken from Israel, apparently only three of them have decided not to bow down to this idol. There would have been no judgment had these men at this point just said, you know what, we should probably just bow down. In fact, they were experiencing judgment for not bowing down they decided, despite the fact that no one else was willing to stand up for this, that they were going to. And here's what I believe, that if it were us, maybe we would begin to justify it like we do other things. Because here's how I think we start to get when it comes to compromise. We do things like this, right? These are the thoughts of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Guys, we should probably just bow down, right? Like if we don't bow down, we're gonna die. And then we can't tell any of these Babylonians about God. So like, how are we gonna be able to do that? So we should probably just bow. And listen, we're gonna bow down But, like, we'll know it's not to their God. Like, it's to our God, right? Like, we'll pray, and it's going to be to the God Almighty, not to this other God. But no one will know it. It's not really that big a deal. We should probably just bow down. All of of our friends are doing it. All of our family is doing it. Let's just bow. Like, it would have been so easy for them at that point just to have bowed down. And, in fact, probably most of us would agree at some level with that justification. And I want to read for us a verse in James that I think is going to give... or rather take every excuse from us this morning. James is the half-brother of Jesus, and I think he has something to say. Towards the end of his book, he writes, if anyone then knows the good that they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. If anyone knows the good that they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Tuck that away, we're gonna come back to it. I read a quote this week that said that spiritual death happens one compromise at a time. Like, you don't just wake up one day and you are spiritually dead. You don't just wake up one day and all of a sudden you are far from God. What's happened is over the course of time, small things have been justified away so that you didn't have to make hard decisions. And this is why, this is why we compromise. We compromise because it's convenient. Here's how I know this. Because we all know that guy or that girl that were in a serious relationship and they broke up and then two days later, it's the weirdest thing they found the one. You're laughing because you know, right? And you're like, they're not the one. They are just a one. Anyone, right? Like they're breathing. So you got together with them. Like we compromise because it's convenient. It is inconvenient to RSVP to a wedding without a plus one, right? I needed a date. He's the one. You don't know. He doesn't go to church, but he loves me. We compromise because it's convenient. And here's another reason we compromise. We compromise because we don't believe that God is up to the challenge. Listen to King Nebbi, He says, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Here's how I think maybe we hear it. If you leave that job that you know you're not supposed to be working at because it's keeping you from church on Sundays, then what God is going to be able to provide for you financially? Or if you leave that guy or that girl that you've been with, that you've given most of your life to, then what God is going to be able to redeem from you, a new and a good relationship. The challenge of the authority and the power of Jesus Christ and of God Almighty has existed since the beginning of time. Eve experienced it in the garden and it continued and it continued and my quest or my plead for you this morning would be, just don't fall for it. Quit falling for it. Paul writes about this in Galatians. The church in Galatia was experiencing a similar thing, and he says this in chapter five. He says, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. In other words, when you are trying to justify why you won't just face that fire instead of fleeing from it, that kind of persuasion is not from God. And James tells us, deep down, you know you want not to do it, and you do it anyways, and it's sin for you. He writes on, still in Galatians 5, he says a little bit of yeast works through the whole batch of dough. And church, this is what we need to understand. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, you need to know this. A little bit of compromise will create a lot of chaos. A little bit of compromise is not content to stay a little bit of compromise. Here's how I know that. I have a two and a half year old daughter. Somebody with kids just laugh because they know. Right, a couple weeks ago, she was having a really, really hard time, and that's parents' nice way of saying she was being a butthead, right? And so, an obstinate deceiver of the truth, and there's wicked in her. Don't look at me like that, you know. And so, all day, right, like she just would not listen. And it got to the end of the day, and I'm gonna be honest with you, I was just tired, right? Like, I was tired of spanking, I was tired of saying no, and she asked, I want mommy to put me to bed, right? which is funny because she always asks for mommy to spank her because she knows daddy's been hitting the gym. It's weird. Everybody laughed at that the most first experience too. I don't know to walk away with. But I consented. I said, okay, fine. Mommy can put you to bed, right? And mommy put her to bed and everything was fine. Mistake, right? Because from that point forward, she had decided that everything we wanted to do as a family needed to be put and written and submitted to her for approval. Right? Right? We were having spaghetti for dinner, and she was like, no, we're not. We're having mac and cheese, and I'm going to throw a fit until you let me, right? A little bit of compromise created a lot of chaos in my house. Anybody remember that book, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie, right? If you don't know, it's like if you give a mouse a cookie, he's going to want some milk. If you give him some milk, he's going to get a napkin. In my daughter's case, if you give her a napkin, she's going to want your 401k and the deed to your house, like, Like if you give a mouse, and I think the same thing happens with compromise. And I would maybe word the book like this. If you give the devil a cookie, he's going to ask for your whole life. There is no just a little bit, because that little bit will lead to everything. So practically, I think today, if we believe what James said, that if we know what we ought to do and we do not do it, then it is sin. I want to make it really hard for you to leave here and not know that you're sinning. That job that you know you ought not to be working because it's keeping you from being in church on Sundays or it's creating a dishonest spirit in you or it's creating a gossiping spirit in you or you're starting to begin to cheat on your spouse and you know you ought not to be in that job. You need to quit that job or it's sin for you. That person that you're with that you know is keeping you from being pure, you're gonna have a conversation with them tonight and it's gonna go like this. We have not been pure in our relationships so we're gonna break up until we're ready to be pure in this relationship simple as that. That we are going to be men and women who do not compromise. You need to understand that when you live like this, you are not facing that fire and it will continue to find you. And so for those in these rooms that would say, I want to know how to face the fire. I want to address that with you this morning. We face the fire through convictions. You see, here's what I know. The only way that these men were able to make this split second decision that would be written down in a book that was read for thousands of years by billions of people to create encouragement is because they were built on conviction. Conviction, conviction are those values that you would rather die than give them up. Conviction, listen, here's conviction. Conviction is going to the gym in the winter. It's weird, I see tons of people in the summer at the gym because you know all of the work, and by work I mean eating, that you've done for the past six months is going to be evident, right? The Bible says that God will shine a light on the darkness. All that non-work that you've been doing is gonna show and so the weird thing happens. You get in the gym and you start pumping iron, right? And all of a sudden it hits around this time of year and everybody's gone, it's like a ghost town. I'm like, can I just take your gym membership and not pay for mine? Because you're not using it. Conviction, if it's raining, if it's snowing, I'm getting up in the morning, I'm going to be in that gym. Conviction is doing the right thing even when you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the people around you are not going to approve of it. Conviction is raising your kids even though you know that they might hate you. Can I get real with you this morning? Conviction is raising your kids even if they may never come back to you. Understanding that God has created you to raise those kids to love Jesus, not to raise those kids to love you. Conviction of the values that you refuse to give up, that to your dying breath you will hold to the grave and we have to believe that these men had convictions because for three years they have been told your god is worth nothing your god abandoned you your god has left you and i believe over and over they would play the stories of their parents and their grandparents of god bringing them out of egypt and god bringing them salvation and going i know that my god is still there conviction conviction makes the decision regardless of outside circumstances And the best part of the passage comes next. Listen to what these men say. They say, we know you're going to throw us into the fire. That's fine. Our God can save us. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow down and worship the image that you've made. See, here's what I want to preach on for a moment this morning. I believe that by and large in 2017 and recent years across the nation and across our world there has been a gospel that's been preached where we make a decision because God has something so much better for us around the corner. We always It's almost like we make the decision because we believe God has something better around the corner not because God has called us to make that decision. And listen to Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. They say God can save us but even if he doesn't we refuse to give up our convictions. What I wanna ask is where are the men and the women of Journey Church who would say, I'm gonna leave that job and God might have a better job waiting for me around the corner, but if it means that I'm flipping burgers and serving fries for 60 hours a week to make ends meet, then that's what I'm gonna do because God has called me to be a man and a woman of conviction. Where are those men and women who are willing to say, I'm gonna leave that person, and if it means I'm gonna be single forever, that's what I'm gonna do because God has called me to be pure and holy and blameless in his sight that God can save me and God can come through don't get me wrong but even if he doesn't I know that to this point in my life he has done far more than he ever needed to do that his grace is sufficient for me that his mercies are new every day and the Bible says that I've been made a brand new creation convictions are those values that you refuse to let go and here's what I know a church of conviction will change the world a church without conviction will shut down it just will it will shut its doors and so my challenge to you this morning journey church would be to be men and women of conviction that james writes to us and he says if you know you ought to do it and you have consistently not done it you're sinning and paul tells us when we experience salvation in christ that we ought not to go sinning anymore Here's what I know. God has not failed you in the fire. God is forging you in the fire. That over the next three or four weeks, we are gonna learn this principle if we don't learn anything else that God has not failed you in the fire, God is forging you. Like I said earlier, what gets put into the fire becomes something new. You cannot get what was originally put into it because of the nature of the fire. The fire doesn't change, the fire is always the same. When you go through it, you become something new and maybe God would have us become something new today. I wanna make it really clear, you only have two options. You can flee from the fire or you can face it. And here's my fear. My fear is that we're gonna leave this room and your phone's gonna start ringing, your iPhone ringer and the bells and the lyre and the harp and the zither are gonna play and it's gonna be your kid's sports program and games are on Sundays and we're gonna do this. My fear is that your boss who's called you 16 Sundays in a row to make you work is gonna call again and the zither and the lyre, and the harp they're going to play again and we're just going to go like this. God can change the world through men and women of conviction but here is the scary thing. God will leave people of compromise to their own devices. In fact, that's the only reason that the Israelites are where they are in this story because for dozens and hundreds of years God has told them to be faithful to the one true God and what have they done over and over and over again? they've conceded to other gods. They've compromised a little. Ultimately, it leads to them sacrificing their babies on human altars. A little bit of compromise is not gonna stay a little bit of compromise. And so long as this church has been founded that we're gonna exist for those not yet here, what's gonna be preached from this stage is that we refuse to compromise. Church is too important to not be in every Sunday. You know somebody gets the chance to meet Jesus every Sunday morning? Who are we to not be there celebrating because of it? The fire is not God failing you. It's God forging you. God has not failed our church. He is forging us. I want to tell you about a fire that I faced about three or four years ago. I came to Journey for the first time the Colonial Theater, if any of you remember, and uh, I hadn't been to church for about a year. My wife and I had been married for a year, worst year of my life, and we came to Journey Church, and I can remember, I can remember John opening worship and saying, welcome to Journey Church. We exist for those not yet here. He said, and what that means is that if you feel far from God, you need to understand one thing. God does not want something from you. God has something for you. I'll be honest, that was a fire for me. I hated that. Maybe it's just my personality and maybe you can relate, but the things that I have in my life, I want to have earned. That it feels good to work for something and to get something in return. And the idea that there was this God that loved me and didn't want anything from me, I was like, what's the catch? There's gotta be something missing. In fact, I don't even like that. I don't like the idea that my salvation is based on anyone else but myself and I can remember over the course of these weeks God doing something in my heart God opening my eyes to realize man if my salvation is based on me I am in trouble because we all know that there will come a time when we are not good enough and we are not strong enough and we do not have what it takes In fact, I don't even need to convince you because like me, you know those things that you hope nobody ever finds out about and you know those things that you've done wrong. And maybe this is why the Catholic church has become so prevalent in our area because we want to believe that as long as we do more good than we've done bad, then our eternity will be secure. And here's what we miss. The good that you've done does not erase the fact that the bad happened. Just because you let somebody have a parking space in Aldi does not mean you did not cheat on your wife. It still happened. And so deep down, we all know that if there is a perfect God, let's just assume for a second, that if there is a perfect God, (laughs) that I don't get to deserve to do anything with him. And here in those words, Journey Church exists for those not yet here. If you feel far from Christ, you do not have to do anything to get to him. He has already done everything to get to you. Jesus' last words before he goes into heaven, after he's raised from the dead, he tells his disciples, you have seen things that no one else will see over the past three years. And your only mission in life is to go and to tell people what I've done in your life is to go and tell people what you've seen. And so Journey Church now for nine years, going on 10 years, has ended every single experience like this. We take an opportunity to tell you what we've seen. I walked into Journey Church broken. I walked into Journey Church selfish as could be. I walked into Journey Church and and I know where my life would be. And Jesus got a hold of me. Jesus who didn't want anything from me had everything for me he got a hold of me and here's what i believe about jesus that though you and I were not good enough to get to a good and a perfect God, that a good and a perfect God had a plan to get to you and I. It says that he sent Jesus to this earth. Jesus was fully God and fully man, and I don't fully understand that, but he's fully changed me, and that's enough for me. And it says that he lived 33 perfect years on this life, the years that you and I have tried to earn back time and time and time again, but in the lonely hours, we know that we are not able to earn back. It says that he lived that perfect life. And this curious thing happened at the end of his life, Even though he was God, he allows himself to be captured by human hands. In fact, he's lived this perfect life, and naturally, humans are upset with him. He's done nothing wrong, and yet they want to kill him. Not only do they kill him, but they humiliate him. It says that they bind him up they blindfold him they spit on his face and they say prophesy you prophet which one of us spat on you So that they beat him across the face with wooden logs and they said prophesy which one of us just hit you and as they jeered and as they mocked the bible says that he was whispering underneath his breath words of compassion and love and mercy that not only did he not deserve to have to come be human and live on this earth he did not deserve to be tortured by the very people that he was dying for people just like you and me and it says that at the end of his life that he marches down a road alone carrying his cross it says that they hang him up on this cross by nails through his hands and his feet it says that at the end of his life something interesting happens that he he shouts with his last breath it is finished it's like is what he came here to do And I remember the moment that that became real for me. The moment that I understood He hung on that cross because of my sin. All those times I was selfish. All those mistakes that I wish I could take back. That's why He was hanging on that cross. Man, that changed my life. He did not want anything from me. He had everything for me. And it says that three days after he dies says the Roman government they were so afraid of this movement that they positioned dozens of Roman guards around his tomb Uh, three days later it's still empty that he's gone says that he appears to over 500 people to testify the words that we sang earlier today that there is power there's power in the name of Jesus And that power that we talk about today is not a generalized power. That power has changed my life. I would not be the husband. I would not be the man. I would not be the father I am today had it not been for the grace of Jesus Christ.